0: The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com.
1: We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today the next passage we come to is is Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, And there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and he put the man whom he had formed Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. May God bless the reading of his word.
0: Thank you, Natalie. Let's pray this morning. Father, what a blessing it is to be gathered together around your word with uh, the opportunity to immerse ourselves in it this morning. So we pray that your spirit would be present and at work in our midst. Lord, causing the, the truths and teachings we encounter here to find a place in our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I believe the the view that most people in our society today have uh, toward Christian sexual ethics is aptly summarized by a poem written by William Blake entitled, The Garden of Love. Now, interestingly, this poem was first published back in 1794, but even though it was written over 200 years ago, uh, it expresses the modern sentiment toward Christian sexual ethics surprisingly well. Blake writes, I went to the garden of love and saw what I had never seen. A chapel was built in the midst where I used to play on the green. And the gates of this chapel were shut, and thou shalt not written over the door. So I turned to the garden of love that so many sweet flowers bore, and I saw that it was filled with graves and tombstones where flowers should be, and priests in black gowns were walking their rounds and binding with briars my joys and desires. So, as you probably discern, even if you're not a sophisticated literary critic, uh, Blake isn't really a big fan of traditional Christian morality. Uh, He desires to play in what he calls the Garden of Love, and yet as he travels there, he sees to his dismay that an unwelcome chapel or a church building, has been built right in the middle of this garden. And in the second stanza of the poem, Blake tells us the words that are written over the door of this chapel. Thou shalt not, it says, which of course is a uh, shorthand uh, for the way the King James Version translates the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not uh, commit adultery. And uh, as Blake surveys the rest of what used to be the Garden of Love, the land that was once covered with flowers is now, it says, filled with grapes. Not only that, but priests, which is another reference to the church, were walking around and binding with briars his joys and desires. So, what's the message of this poem? Well, essentially, William Blake views the church's teaching on sexuality as unbearably oppressive and restrictive. He has what he believes to be these wonderful sexual desires that he yearns to enjoy as he sees fit, but the church, and by implication God, seems intent on ruining everything by making him repress those desires that would otherwise bring him such delight. As a result, he can't enjoy the fun and the pleasures that he believes are natural. And likewise, I'm sure that a strong majority of people in our society today would probably agree with that perspective as well. However, our main passage in Genesis 2 presents us with a much different perspective, and that perspective is that in his goodness, God's given us a blueprint for sexual ethics that promotes human flourishing. He doesn't just send us off to go and figure things out on our own. Instead, he lovingly shows us the way to function in this area that will lead to the greatest amount of happiness and harmony and blessing. And the basic elements of God's blueprint for human flourishing are laid out for us right here in Genesis 2. Now, you may remember that Genesis 1 recorded God creating this world in Six days with a day-by-day summary on what God created on each of those days. And then as we see in the first few verses of Genesis 2, he rested on the seventh day. However, the subsequent verses of Genesis 2 that we're looking at today actually go back in time to the sixth day of creation when God created humans and give us a more detailed account of what that looked like. So Genesis 1 and 2 aren't strictly chronological. Rather, a good portion of Genesis 2 is sort of like instant replay in slow motion of the sixth day of creation from Genesis 1. So just to briefly walk through this passage, we read in Genesis 2, 5 through 7, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So we see here that we have life because God made us alive. He's the one who breathed into our nostrils that breath of life. The life we enjoy is an unmerited gift from our good and gracious God. The story then continues in verses 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, as we're going to see in a few weeks in Genesis 3, these two trees are pretty important. Uh, But for now, let's just take note of the fact that the goodness of God in creating such a wonderful paradise in Eden and and placing the man he had created in that paradise— Uh, where the man could be surrounded by these trees that were both pleasant to the sight and good for food. So clearly, God loves this man that he has created and desires nothing but the best for him. But that's not the end of God's goodness. Moving down to verse 18, we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, if you remember back to Genesis 1, you might recall that right after God created the various things he created on each of the six days, God looked back on what he had created and saw, what? It says that he saw that it was good. That's what we find six times written in Genesis 1. Yet here, somewhat... (laughs) shockingly, God actually sees something that's not good. He says, it is not good that the man should be alone, meaning that there was something incomplete. So, God makes a helper who is a suitable fit for the man. Not a clone of the man, but a helper who would be a good fit for him and serve as a good counterpart for him. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Obviously, there's a lot in these verses, and we'll examine them more closely a little bit later on this morning and also next week, but even here at the outset, I'll say that these verses represent the culmination of the entire chapter of Genesis 2. In these verses, God lays out a blueprint for human flourishing in his creation of one man and one woman to live together in a lifelong covenant relationship. Uh, That's the, the main idea that we find here. I know that's kind of a long one, so feel free to shake out your hand if you start to cramp up in the middle of writing that down. But that's just the the, the most concise summary of what's going on here that I could uh, come up with. God lays out a blueprint for human flourishing in his creation of one man and one woman to live together in a lifelong covenant relationship. Again, he hasn't just left us to figure things out on our own. In his goodness, he's given us a blueprint. And this blueprint is designed not to ruin our fun or to limit our enjoyment, but to promote human flourishing. And it does that in three ways. We might say that there are three gifts that are given to us in this blueprint. First, the gift of gender. God gave humanity two genders male and female. And uh, these two genders are good gifts from our good God and are the only two genders that exist. And to be honest, the fact that I even have to start here uh, with the gift of gender is uh, sort of a sad indicator of the times in which we live and of how far our society has fallen away from God's design. And uh, make no mistake, the reason there's such confusion about gender nowadays is because of the fact that our society, by and large, has rejected God. See, it turns out that without God, people don't even know who they are anymore. Their identity unravels. You see, in order to truly know ourselves, we first have to know God. And since our society has lost the knowledge of God, we're consequently struggling to know ourselves, even in an area as fundamental as gender. And uh, that's what we're witnessing playing out tragically in American society right now. And yet Genesis 2 is quite clear that God only created two genders, uh, male and female, and these two genders, I'll just say, Correspond to the reproductive organ that the individual has. Uh, I don't think I need to get much more specific than that. Um, Someone with a male reproductive organ is a male, while someone with a female reproductive organ is a female. Uh, Contrary to the beliefs of some, you actually don't have to be a biologist uh, to know that. Now, It's true that in rare cases, uh, people can have uh, physical anomalies that sometimes make it difficult to determine their gender, and uh, that's because we live in a fallen world where even creation itself is now in a state of dysfunction. And uh, Jesus actually uh, references these individuals in Matthew 19, 12, when he states that there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. However, even though these physical anomalies exist, that doesn't mean that there's not a God-ordained link between a person's reproductive organ and their gender. And people who have these kinds of physical anomalies should simply embrace their biological gender to the degree that it can be known. Yet for everyone else who's confused about their gender, uh, not because of any physical anomaly, but simply because of something that's more psychological in nature, understand that there are two realities that are simultaneously true of these individuals. And it's critical for us to keep both of these realities in mind as we approach people who believe that they have a gender identity that's different than their biological sex. First of all, it's true that these these individuals are in rebellion against God. Uh, They are living out uh, their desire to usurp God's authority and, in effect, to be their own God. That's what it ultimately boils down to, human autonomy, attempting to take from God the authority that rightly belongs to him and wield that authority ourselves. So even if people aren't consciously thinking in those terms, that's essentially what they're doing. So in that sense, people are sinners. However, it's also important for us to remember that a lot of these people are experiencing genuine confusion regarding their gender and struggling and even suffering in a very profound way. Uh, Gender dysphoria, as it's often called, can be a very painful experience. Uh, Many people in this category have a lot of feelings and struggles that they didn't necessarily choose for themselves. Instead, they experience certain things simply by virtue of the fact that ever since humanity's rebellion against God in Genesis 3, what theologians call the fall, again, creation is in a state of dysfunction. So this means that at times, we can have uh, disordered intuitions and a disordered perception of reality. And so in that sense, people who struggle with gender dysphoria are sufferers. And even though their suffering might be exacerbated by their sin and their sinful acceptance of modern gender theories, that doesn't mean that all of their suffering is a direct result of their sin, right? Some of the suffering that these individuals experience might be suffering that's simply a result of the fall, and certain feelings and struggles uh, related to the fall that they didn't ask for, but that they're nevertheless forced to deal with. And so just recognize that people who have an incorrect understanding of their own gender are simultaneously both sinners and sufferers. Just get those two categories fixed in your mind. Sinners and sufferers. And uh, we should seek to minister to them accordingly, with both clarity about their sin as well as compassion to them in their suffering. So all of that relates to the gift of gender. Then a second gift that we find in the blueprint of Genesis 2 is the gift of sexuality. And as we've already said, the gift of sexuality is intended to be enjoyed by one man and one woman in the context of a lifelong covenant relationship. And we'll get to the lifelong covenant relationship part in a little while, but I'd like to first focus on the one man and one woman. Notice here that God did not create two men and pair them together, nor did he create two women and pair them with each other, nor did he create two women and one man or two men and one woman and group them together. Instead, the clear pattern uh, we see here is one man and one woman. In addition to this pattern, there are other verses in the Bible that uh, explicitly prohibit homosexual behavior and identify that behavior as sin. Romans 1, 26 and 27 says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Also, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 clearly states that neither the sexually immoral nor those who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. So the Bible is pretty clear that homosexual behavior of any kind is a sinful distortion of God's good gift of sex. Now, even though it's true that many people experience Homosexual desires, that doesn't mean that it's okay to act on those desires. It's just like any other area of morality, right? As is the case in in so many different areas of morality, the the simple fact that we have a persistent desire for a certain behavior doesn't in any way justify that behavior. I mean, if a a man desires to go rape and pillage, that doesn't justify uh, raping and pillaging And also, another error related to this that I'd like to address is that a lot of people today assume that their sexual desires are inseparably bound up in their identity. In fact, many of them consider their sexual desires to be central to their identity. Uh, Their sexuality, they believe, is at the very heart of who they are as a person, as a Someone who's now a Christian uh, but was not before, Christopher Wan, he writes this. When I came out in my early 20s, I believed the only way to live authentically as a gay man was to fully embrace that identity. Being gay was who I was. As a matter of fact, my whole world was gay, all of my friends were gay. My neighbors were gay. My apartment manager was gay. My barber was gay. My house cleaner was gay. My bookkeeper was gay. My car salesman was gay. I worked out at a gay gym and bought groceries at the gay Kroger. Sexuality was the core of who I was. And everything and everyone around me affirmed that. And if I am gay truly means that's who I am it would be utterly cruel for someone to condemn me for simply being myself. So in the minds of most in the gay community, being gay isn't just what they desire or what they do. It's who they are. And so to them, any suggestion that those desires are disordered is essentially a rejection of them as a person. However, the Bible teaches that our identity is found not in our sexual desires, but rather in the fact, as we learned, that God created us in his image. On the most fundamental level, we are image bearers of God. And for those of us who are Christians, we're also dearly loved children of God. That's our identity. So I'm not sure it's helpful uh, to refer to uh, certain people as homosexuals or as gay just because they have those desires since that could be taken to imply that the mere presence of those inclinations are a part of their identity. Instead, I I believe we can avoid some confusion uh, simply by speaking of homosexual behavior as displeasing to God rather than saying something Uh, about someone's desires that could be interpreted as an identity statement. And uh, the fact is that there are many people, and even many Christians, who have homosexual desires and attractions and just can't help it. Again, their desires have been twisted and distorted by the fall. However, it's important to understand that they don't have to give in those desires by God's grace and through the power of the gospel they can walk in victory over the desires they experience and they aren't being inauthentic or untrue to themselves by doing so and for those who are christians and are striving to do that i would encourage you to refer to them not as homosexual or as gay again avoiding those identity statements but simply as those who struggle with same-sex attraction. Uh, That's just a much better way of putting it that avoids confusion. Those who struggle with same-sex attraction. And Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction aren't fundamentally different than other Christians. Because, brothers and sisters, we all struggle in various ways. Some Christians struggle with gossip. Other Christians struggle with anger. And others struggle with same-sex attraction. Same-sex attraction is just one more way in which some Christians can be tempted. Then finally, a third gift we find in this passage is the gift of marriage. As God says in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this means that marriage isn't merely a human contract, but rather a divinely instituted covenant, a sacred agreement given to us by God himself in which one man and one woman commit to live together in an exclusive sexual relationship with each other. Now, a quick side note here, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that singleness also is honorable, and meaningful. So in addition to the gift of marriage, uh, there's also strong biblical precedent for what we might call the gift of singleness. And contrary to what's often assumed, uh, the gift of singleness doesn't necessarily mean that you like being single or that you desire to be single for the rest of your life. Instead, it's simply a recognition that singleness is the situation in which God has sovereignly placed you right now, and that that situation itself is a gift from God. And so if you are currently single, uh, by definition, then you have the gift of singleness, even if you desire to marry. And then if you end up getting married in the future, you would at that point go in an instant from having the gift of singleness to having the gift of marriage. And a key element of this gift of marriage is that there's an expectation of absolute sexual fidelity. That's what it means here in verse 24, for a man to hold fast to his wife and for the two of them to become one flesh. This means that any sexual relationship outside of that covenant of marriage is inherently sinful. So that includes fornication, which is a somewhat archaic term referring to sex before marriage, as well as adultery, which refers to a married person having sex with someone who's not their spouse. And we can even include lust on that list, since in Matthew 5, 28, Jesus says that lust is adultery of the heart. So that means that viewing pornography also is inherently sinful. And finally, as we look at what God says in Genesis 2.24 about a man holding fast to his wife and becoming one flesh with her, we have to conclude that in most situations, divorce also is a sinful departure from God's design. Uh, According to the Bible, there are only two situations in which divorce is permissible. One situation is if your spouse commits adultery According to Matthew 19.9, if your spouse cheats on you, you are permitted to divorce them. Also, according to 1 Corinthians 7.15, your spouse abandoning you or uh, refusing to live with you is also grounds for divorce. However, um, in all other situations, divorce is prohibited uh, in the Bible. It's It's unbiblical. And so Jesus says in Matthew 19, 9, that whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So that's the biblical view of marriage, right? And next week, we'll get more specific about how the husband and wife should relate to one another and what a healthy marriage looks like. But for now, I'd just like to emphasize the fact that good, uh, marriage is a good gift from our good God. It's an incredible blessing that God's given to us, and I'd even say the capstone of his blueprint for human flourishing that we find here in Genesis 2. So, thinking of this passage as a whole, contrary to what many in our society think, God's plan for sexual ethics is not oppressive, or joy-stealing at all. Instead, it shows us the path of life. In Psalm 1611, David says to God, you make known to me the path of life. That's what God does for us in the blueprint he provides in Genesis 2 and even in its implied prohibitions uh, of various forms of sexual deviation. See, sex is a lot like water inside your house, right? Having running water like inside the pipes is a tremendous blessing, right? I am so glad that we live in an era and in a society where just about every house has running water. I can't imagine having to go outside, especially in the wintertime, to, to use the outhouse or something like that. I mean, that just does not sound fun at all. So praise God for the gift of running water. However, uh, those of you who have had to deal with water issues and water damage inside your home, you know very well that if water leaks outside of those pipes, it can be a very damaging thing, right? uh, A couple years ago, Becky and I returned from uh, church one Sunday to find water coming out of our kitchen ceiling in three different places from the, the bathroom that was on the, the upstairs uh, of, of our house. So that was uh, certainly not a very enjoyable experience. And so inside the pipes, water is a tremendous blessing. But whenever water leaks outside of those pipes, it becomes very destructive. And sex is the same way. Like, when we don't enjoy sex the way God intended for us to enjoy it, it ultimately destroys us. Many times it destroys us emotionally sooner or later, and it always destroys us spiritually. That's why God's given us instructions for how to conduct ourselves in this area. So if you're a Christian, please understand, you're not missing out on anything by following God's instructions for sexuality. Um, I love Psalm 8411 which states, with reference to God, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You're not missing out on anything by following God's blueprint and pursuing a life of purity. So let me encourage those of you who are Christians, not to trade in your birthright for a bowl of stew. Some of you may recognize that as a reference to the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis 25. And One day Esau comes in from a hard day's work and asks his brother Jacob for some stew. He says he's so exhausted that he just has to have stew right now. So Jacob cunningly says, I'll give you some stew if you give me your birthright. Now, birthright was a set of uh, very special and valuable privileges that the firstborn son uh, enjoyed in that culture. Among other things, the birthright included a double portion of the family inheritance. And Esau is so foolish and so driven by his bodily appetites that he consents to this ridiculous offer he actually trades in his birthright for a bowl of stew. And although we scoff at his foolishness today, how often are we tempted to trade in our birthright as Christians for the bowl of stew that our sexually deviant culture wants to feed us? How often do we trade in the Christian view of sex with all of its sacred and transcendent meaning as as the symbol of the union that Christ desires to have with his bride, the church. We'll talk more about that next week. How often do we trade in that Christian and transcendent view of sex for the pathetic, worthless, cheap view of sex that our culture, our, our society says is so good, but really is worth about as much as pocket money. So please, if you're a Christian, don't trade in your birthright. Approach sex as the sacred and wonderful thing that God intended for it to be. Now maybe you're sitting there this morning, uh, listening to all this, and thinking to yourself about how badly you have deviated from God's design. If that's you, I want you to know that there is hope for you. If you don't remember anything else from this entire message, remember this, that Jesus loves you. He loves you in the midst of your brokenness and your sinfulness. And he offers you forgiveness and cleansing and rescue, and redemption. Because, guys, the reality is that we have all blown it in various ways. Every single one of us has deviated from God's blueprint for our lives in some form or fashion. And yet, Jesus has his arms wide open, ready and eager to receive sinners like you and me. Just like in the parable Jesus tells in Luke 15 where the father ran out to meet his prodigal son who had previously left the family and engaged in all kinds of rebellion but who is now returning home. Jesus stands ready to receive anyone who will turn to him and put their trust in him. He is God's his arms wide open. As Romans 5.20 states, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And as God says in Isaiah 1.18, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Friends, there is infinite cleansing and renewing power in the gospel. No matter what you've done or what messes you've made, God offers you full forgiveness through Jesus. If you will simply turn from your sin and put your trust in him to rescue you. And the reason he's able to do that is because Jesus already suffered the punishment for our sins. In his death on the cross. He paid the debt that we owed. And made full atonement for our sins. And then three days later, he resurrected from the dead so that we could experience that same resurrection power in our lives. So the good news of the gospel is that God not only offers us his forgiveness, but also his transforming power through the Holy Spirit so that we can live as he intended for us to live in this area and function As he intends us
1: to function.